right, today in Deuteronomy class, we're returning to the book of Deuteronomy. And chapter 6. So today we are officially not following my schedule anymore, which I just handed out. This uh, might now turn into a, a two-semester class. I uh, discussed with the, the other elders the, you know, the significance of some of the things in this section in Deuteronomy and perhaps the need to, to slow down so that we have time to discuss these things, process these things, and not just skip over them, especially when you come to a text that is about the commandment. You know, it's not something you want to just breeze through and skip over quickly. So we're going to be going through the next few chapters in Deuteronomy a, li a little bit slower. So that frees you up to ask questions is one of the things that it does. You know, don't, don't feel like uh, you're stopping me from being able to continue on on time. And I'll also try to end at 10 instead of 1017, all right, because I want you to have that time to be able to fellowship with other people. So this section of Deuteronomy that we're beginning to, to look at includes, it, go, it goes from chapter 5 through chapter 11, and the, basically the way that it builds is this past week we looked at the, the 10 words, and chapter 5, and now in chapter 6 through 8, we have the Shema, or the commandment, or the great commandment, which has a focus on fearing God, and then the next section within chapters 5 to 11 is 9 to 11, which is a, a warning to not be self-righteous. But today where we find ourselves is in the beginning of chapter 6 the beginning of the, the Shema and it being introduced. And the main point within this section is the heart of the law. You know, what, what is the heart of the law? What is this whole teaching model that's been presented to, to Israel? What does it point to ultimately? Uh, to Christ, yes. <laughs> you remember the, the word law, it doesn't mean rules. It means instruction. So the, the law was an instructor, it was a teaching tool, it was teaching Israel many things and still teaches us things today. And the central point of all of the, the law instruction is 6.5. It says, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see, this, this is the heart of the law. This is... Uh, Moses' main sermon point. Yeah, it, it would, you know, if he had a sermon title, that would be it. And as we come to the beginning of this text, let's, let's pray and we'll start looking at the, the first few verses together and considering them. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the love that you had for us, that you would demonstrate by sending your son for us even while we were still sinners that you would wash away all of our sins that you would credit to us his righteousness that you would give us 
an eternal inheritance in you to be your sons forever, to have a place with you forever, to have the future hope of being glorified and freed from this world of sin to live forever in your kingdom of righteousness. We pray that in this text that we would study, that you would teach us the nature of love, how to love you, that you would give us needed correction and reproof and rebuke and training in righteousness from this text as your word is sufficient to do. We pray above all that we would go away seeing your uniqueness and your covenant love and your faithfulness toward us and that would transform in us a greater love for you and a greater committed faithfulness to you. Amen. The Shema. What is, what is Shema? Is this a new word that you've never heard? It's the Hebrew word for, in chapter 4, it says, hear, you know, hear, O Israel. The Hebrew word is Shema. It can also be translated, listen. And it has the idea of obedience within it. You know, it's just like when you tell your kids, you know, you're like, listen to me. You know, you don't want them to just comprehend what you said. You want them to do something with what you said, you know, this word functions like that, and historically it's been known as the Shema, but the, here's how Moses introduces it in his sermon in verse 1. He says, now this is the commandment. Now, notice it, this isn't the commandment with, you know, T-H-E, but this is the commandment, T-H-E. <laughs> I know that we don't have another spelling for that, but uh, so you, there's that section that you know, we, we, we refer to it as the Ten Commandments but within those ten it's like well how, how would you sum all of that up you know Moses boil it down because you've given us a lot of instruction you did boil it down to ten things we got ten fingers we can count them and try to remember it but make it, make it simple <laughs> you know, what's the point of all of this stuff and he's like alright this is the commandment this is the one thing that you need to know, and this is what everything is about. It says, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do it in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear Yahweh your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is, we're coming to the commandment that drives the whole of law instruction. And notice when it comes to this, concept of fearing God in verse 2, fear Yahweh your God comes before keeping his statutes and his commandments. You have to have this relationship with him first. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You don't start by being wise and then moving to the fear of God. You have to start fearing him in relationship with him before you're ever hearing him and walking with him. 
which is exactly what has happened. Uh, God didn't start off with Israel and just say, well, here's the 10 words. Now you can come into relationship to me. It starts with, I redeemed you. Uh, I'm your God. I brought you into this covenant. And the covenant, what it does, it, it establishes the relationship. But then the law gives the instructions on how do you live out this covenant relationship now. And the primary thing that we're going to see within this is it's to love God, which we're going to need to define in this text. It does define it for us. So relationship comes before instructions on how to live out the relationship. And within the Hebrew text, you have this word shema and this other word shamar, which is keep. So listen and keep. The idea is these words kind of sound the same. Some people hear shema, shamar. Well, it's like, listen, keep. Uh, these ideas are tied together. He's not, you know, again, he's not just saying, you know, I want you to be able to, to pass the quiz at the end of this and just give me all the right answers and then you'll be okay. It's like, no, I want you to obey me. Uh, I want you to have the, the joy of walking with me, not just hearing from me, but living life under me. And so verse four begins with this word Shema or here, and it says, look in beginning verse four, you know, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So here Moses is summarizing the heart of the law. He's pointing out Yahweh's uniqueness. Uh, there's nobody like him. You, know, you go back into chapter four, it's like, you know, has, any, has any nation ever had a God who delivered them like I have delivered you and given you uh, instruction in life that is this wise. So he's, he's totally unique. And not only that, he's our God. You know, we're in relationship with him. He's, he's not a distant God. He's a with us God and he is one. And then as he summarizes the heart of the law, he says, because God has committed himself to you in covenant, you have an obligation to love him and return that commitment back to him as well. And loving Yahweh is to be absolutely central in your life. And fathers are to take this concept and to pass it on to their sons. So it'll be passed on to their grandsons and the next generation and the next generation. So as we've gone over, the, the 10 words give instruction about the character of God. They were given to teach Israel, this is what your God is like, but also to point out the nature of man. Because when you read those commandments, they see, well, we've broken every single one of those. Uh, it's to show, to point out the sinfulness of man while pointing to the holiness of God, which should lead them to conclude, we can't keep this law. We deserve God's judgment. Uh, we deserve the fire from the mountain to come down and consume us, but 
Who can go up the mountain and come back to us to bring us up the mountain? Who can be a mediator for us? Who can atone for us? Who could intercede for us? Well, it's going to have to be somebody greater than Moses because Moses has sinned and he's going to get the wages of sin, which is death. He's not going to be able to bring them into the land great as he was. They need a God-man mediator, which is what the law instruction was tutoring them unto. The 10 words outline principles for living out this already established covenant relationship with Yahweh. And beyond this, you get some greater details of the statutes and the judgments, which is where you get that word statutes is probably more about how you think of the word law. That's, that's where you have the rules. That's where you have the, the legal stipulations. It's in that word statutes. And then the judgments, judgments is another word for decisions. You know, it's in, this is how, how Yahweh makes decisions. And because he makes decisions like this, you make these sort of decisions in life. And so they further outline how they're to apply those 10 principles in certain specific situations, which we'll get to eventually, Lord willing. So how would you summarize the totality of the law? Somebody said, there's a bunch of information here. There's a, a, a lot of law. There's a lot of statutes. There's a, a lot of commandments. I mean, if you were to just to sum it up, how would you sum up the totality of the law? Yeah, you're, it's, you hear it. Here's Moses' answer. It's the main point of his sermon. You know, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. It says, hear, O Israel. This is, he says, this is the commandment. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There was a scholar of the law who asked Jesus, you know, what is the great commandment in the law. And you can turn over to Matthew twenty two thirty four and see how that was answered. Matthew twenty two thirty four. Matthew twenty two thirty four. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a scholar of the law. It's a smarty pants guy here. And he asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Deuteronomy. Six, five. There we go. We got some people that know the, the song there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. How was Jesus giving a, a new teaching or a new interpretation of anything here? No, he was just preaching his Bible. 
uh, his answer was what Moses' answer was. And what Moses' answer was was his answer. You know, he, he was, uh, he is the word of God. And when, as we look back in Deuteronomy 6, it says, this is the commandment. Well, how do you know which one is the great commandment? Well, it's the only one that's called the commandment. <laughs> and Jesus also connects back not only into Deuteronomy 6, 5, but to Leviticus 19, 18, when he quotes from that text, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did y'all know that that was in Leviticus 19, 18? It's just another old teaching. Jesus was just preaching his Bible. Did you know that the New Testament is just Old Testament Bible preaching? Going back to Deuteronomy and verse 4, we're going to look a little bit more at that statement. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one which is communicating to, to Israel. They're, they're in covenant relationship with Yahweh alone, you know, only him. There isn't to be another in which they have a relationship like this. And this word one is the same word that's used in this text in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now you think about that, this word that he's using for one, saying Yahweh is one. He's connecting it to this idea of covenant and marriage. Uh, he's communicating what Paul picks up on in Ephesians 5 when he's talking about Christ and the church and the covenant relationship that they have with one another. And he's, you know, the mystery is great and Profound, but it has been made known to us. He's connecting these sort of ideas we're talking about here. But the point of this, you know, Yahweh is one and this idea of connecting into the, the one flesh union of a marriage is communicating. You can't have this kind of covenant relationship with anybody else. This is an entirely unique relationship. Uh, you are one with one and nobody else. This is a unique and exclusive relationship. And as a side sort of nerdy point here, this doesn't teach that Yahweh can't have multiple persons within his being, which you've already seen throughout scripture, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, you have Yahweh on earth and then Yahweh in the heaven. Uh, then you have Moses when he's taught about how intercession works. You have Yahweh that's standing next to him, praying to Yahweh in heaven. And like, well, how does all of this stuff work? If Yahweh's one, you can have multiple persons, just like in a marriage, you can have a, a one flesh union, but there's two persons in it. So, you know, I bring that up because this is one of the things that the Jews would, un, you know, misunderstand. So, well, Jesus can't be Yahweh or be God. He can't say I and the Father are one because he's just one and there can't be multiples within that but they see even in their own scriptures within the one flesh union they say well you can have two persons in that you can't have like a, a solo marriage <laughs> so Yahweh is one he, he's indivisible you, know, you can't uh, divide him up you can't you're not to divide up your devotion or commitment to him uh, he, he will not share his glory with another He's in a category all to his own, and you're not to share that category that he's in with anything else whatsoever. 
not even a hint of it. So what does this mean for life? Well, it means you love him. Uh, you love him alone. Uh, only he gets this kind of allegiance from your life. Uh, all of your affections are to go to him, so much so that all other relationships would look like hatred in comparison. And as you think about this, by implication, we're beginning to develop a definition for idolatry. You know, idolatry is when you don't do this. And Deuteronomy will continue to flesh out defining idolatry. Uh, I want you to see how Paul picks up on this sort of concept in 1 Corinthians 8. If you want to turn with me there, 1 Corinthians 8. going to tie in this idea of devotion to, to one God, excluding any devotion to any idols. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 6. It says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. If you have an ESV, I think you see that in quotes. He's like, knowledge, the way that you guys think about it, puffs up says, but love builds up. If anyone thinks that he has known anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, now what does that sound like? The commandment, right? If anybody loves God, he has been known by him. Means he's, he's in relationship with him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. Where did Paul learn that in his Bible? Yeah, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's preaching uh, an implication of Deuteronomy 6 here. He says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So you see this, because we're in this covenant relationship with one God, we don't share that with anybody else, anything else. It, you can't have any sort of idolatry in your life whatsoever, even conceptually. Uh, you're to love God with everything that you are, which is what Deuteronomy 6 goes on to say, the next section of the text we'll look at is those words, you shall love Yahweh your God. What is love? What is love? How would you define that? You know, take a stat. You probably won't get picked up on the recording. <laughs> yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, that, that gives you an, an explanation of what love looks like in action. That was a pretty good one there. Uh, a choice to do good to somebody else. Paul House in his Old Testament theology 
writes this, he says, quote, the very soul of the covenant is not coerced or obligatory obedience, but love. God's love is evident in his desire that all go well with Israel. All divine commands flow from this love, which itself flows from God's character, end quote. That's just another way of saying exactly what Joe just said. But you see, primarily, love is a choice. Usually when we think about, when we hear people talk about love, they say, well, love is a, fe- a feeling. It's something that you just fall into. What you think, of, you never fall into a choice. <laughs> you know, you, you choose to do the thing. It's not accidental. It, it's purposeful. But that love is not just a choice. In, it's a choice in interest of the other. What you see, God did that in covenant love. He was looking out for the interest of Israel. And when we love other people, we make a choice to deny ourselves and to esteem the interest of others as higher than our own. Covenant commitment is demonstrated in action. It's action in seeking the interest of another it's not merely a feeling or having a, a disposition or an attraction towards someone. And it's not something that's merely demonstrated in words. It's demonstrated in action. You know, just like we say, talk is cheap. But what really speaks is your, your actions speak louder than words. Now, when you think back about God's love for Israel, how has he demonstrated his love for Israel? Yeah, I think, you know, in general, he, he's keeping covenant with them. He keeps bringing up what he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, Jacob. So, you know, why, why are these things happening in the world? Why are they happening to Israel, is it because they're so numerous? Is it because they're just so adorable? He just couldn't help himself. <laughs> He's showing his love by covenant keeping. He's like, I told you I was going to do this and I'm committed. Uh, I'm going to be faithful. And he's looking out for their interest. You know, in general, that's what, and you have all the specifics of. You know, the whole exodus. They're being commanded to love Yahweh like he has loved them. They're being commanded to keep covenant like he has been keeping covenant with them. And you think about this, having this concept of love. How many times in scripture do you read somebody saying, I love you to Yahweh? How many times do you read somebody say, I keep covenant with you like you keep covenant with me. Thinking I say, I don't know that I would say that. <laughs> you read often in scripture the statement, I love your law. I love the things that you teach me. <laughs> I love your instruction. Cross-reference Psalm 119. But nobody ever says, I love you to Yahweh in the first testament ever. There's only one instance in the whole first testament that comes pretty close. It's Psalm 116. And in your translation, it likely reads, I love Yahweh because he hears my voice and my supplications. Now, 
when you read this in Hebrew, it says, I love because he hears. And then there's this big line that goes, <laughs> and it says, Yahweh. So it reads, you know, I love Yahweh because he hears my voice. Or no, he says, I love because Yahweh hears my voice. Or it could be translated, you know, I love that Yahweh hears my voice and my supplications. But, you know, the scribes definitely put a big line in there. It's like, that's a really scary thing to say <laughs> there. So be careful. Now, this might give some insight into why Peter wouldn't use the same word for love that Jesus did when he, when he asked him, do you love me? Now, I'm going to try to get you to get a legacy standard Bible. Turn to John 21. <laughs> Beginning in verse 15, it says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these. How many of you have a footnote on the word love in your Bible? Like a little number one right there before the letter L. All right. Who, if you have a footnote, what Bible translation do you have? Okay. So what the, the translators are pointing out to you, there, there's different words for love that are being used. Jesus is using this word from back in Deuteronomy, and Peter's using a different word. And so as he's working through this, you know, if you have a Legacy Standard Bible, the translators have given you this in a footnote so that you can know about this and figure it out. It, you'll, you'll be, you've probably heard these words, but Jesus is talking about, he's using the word agape, Peter's using the word phileo. You know, there's agape love and phileo love. And essentially what Jesus is asking, he says, do you love me with a sacrificial covenant keeping love? Now remember, what had Peter just done historically three times? You think he's gonna say yes to that question? <laughs> yeah, you know, Peter's thinking back on, I denied him three times. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I have a brotherly mutual love for you. He picks a different word. And Jesus, as this narrative goes on, he confronts Peter with how he will actually live out a sacrificial covenant keeping love to the end, even though Peter, as a good Jew, would never dare to speak the words to Yahweh himself, I love you. So it's like, I can't say that I do for him what he does to me. And so you see, there's, there's a healthy fear of God that he has there, but you also see the grace of God in that he says, you are gonna sacrifice yourself for me. You are gonna keep covenant in the end. It's gonna cost you your life, but you're gonna be faithful. You're not gonna deny me in the end because of my covenant keeping love for you. Well, when it comes to loving God, what are we to do that with? Just like with all of your words? 
yeah, all, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What is your heart? Yeah, it's the decision-making sort of thing. You know, a lot of times when we talk, we want to say heart and mind. Because we don't think, we, we talk like it's like your affections and your thinker. But when we read in Deuteronomy, he says, know this in your heart. Well, know, know is a thinking word, right? He doesn't say, feel this in your heart. Which feeling happens in there too. We don't want to just, you know, totally cut that out. But this idea of heart Sometimes uh, the word is actually translated mind instead of heart. But where the heart is is in the head. So this is a stick figure guy. And we put the heart in the biblical place. <laughs> and you're to love him with all, all your heart. This is your control center. You know, this is where the thinking happens. And they would talk about, you know, feelings being in their guts and stuff like that. Their bowels of compassion and such. But those things are tied together. Your, your thinker and feeler are tied together. And you're to love God with all your soul, which is what? What is a, what is a soul? You know, it's, it's your whole person. It's your entire being. It's... You know, all of your insides and everything that comes outside of your insides, right? Everything that's in you and that comes out of you. So you have all of that. And then you're to love him with all your might. What is might? The idea here is... Yeah, strength, it's your resources. You know, this word soul or person already covers, you know, all that you already are, which, you know, includes your muscles and brain power and all of that stuff. But the idea with might, you think about it, like, you know, we say money is power. The more money you have, the, the more ability you have to do certain things. Or I was asked about this in, in TAG, and I explained to, to one kid how, you know, one guy who has as a resource is a shovel versus another guy who has the, the resource of a tractor. Tractor guy has more might, but it's tied into his, the, because of the resources he has. And the idea with this word here is that you're to love God with all of your resources. You're to love him with all of your possessions, with all of your household. So it includes the stuff you have and the, the people that are related to you and around you, everything. So it's when it comes to, you know, loving God, what does he want you to love him with? Well, with your, your thinker, your feeling, all the stuff that's inside of you, all the stuff that comes out, out of you, and all the stuff that he's put around you and given to you as resources to use. There, another, there's nothing that's exempt from this category of loving God. It, it's absolutely all-encompassing. It, it includes your refrigerator, your recliner chair, uh, it, it, you know, everything. We could go on on that, that list forever. But you can just, just go home and just say, I'm supposed to love God with you and you and you. <laughs> How am I going to do that? <laughs> and Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, it goes on to say, well, these words which I am commanded, 
commanding you today shall be on your bookshelf. Yeah, or uh, on your lips. Come on, somebody set me straight. <laughs> yeah, your heart, there we go. So it, it's, to, it's to be on your heart, which is it's something that's, that's internal. And something internal has to change. It's hinting at that. It's not, he's not looking for just something external. He, he's not saying, well, these commandments should just, you should just look like you're following them. He's like, no, you, you should want to from the inside out. Well, so then how do you live out this love? Well, you have to be given a new heart to want to do it and to be able to do it. This is exactly what the, the law is pointing out. It says, this is the thing that you're missing and this is the thing that you need. It's a way of preaching that something supernatural and internal needs to happen to you. Your heart needs to be circumcised, which you know later Moses is gonna give them this impossible commandment. He's gonna say, circumcise your heart. <laughs> like, how, do you, how do you do that? Well, you need a divine physician. Yeah, there, there's no doctor that knows how to do that besides the divine physician himself. And this is all teaching you the, about the nature of loving God. You know, it, it would be tragic to love God in all the wrong ways. Uh, we don't want to love him on our terms and think, well, I think that the way that you love God is, well, you do this or... I feel like what God wants me to do is this. Well, no, don't, don't follow your feelings. <laughs> you know, don't, don't follow your heart. You know, follow God's instruction that it would be on your heart and you would be living according to his word, which is exactly how the Moses is defining what love is. I was like, well, what does love look like? Well, it looks like you put his word on your heart. Like, this is number one. Uh, your Bible people is what he's saying to them. And more than that, it's not just something that you're taking in for yourself, but you're giving it out to others. So he's not, he's not calling you know, fathers here to be uh, bedroom scholars. He says, teach this to your children. Show them with your life what it looks like to love God. So they'll see you know, a, a walking picture of godliness in action and they'll get to hear about it in teaching. And so he commands them to, to make sharp your children or to, to teach them so that they have a, a sharp grasp of what God requires of them and teaches about who he is. What you see in Deuteronomy 6, 7 to 9, these words are to be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And here again, he's, he's specifically talking about the fathers of Israel and their, their sons. You know, this is, you know, again, this idea of regaining what was lost in Eden, which was you know, the man being the head of the household. He says, this needs to be regained and this is how it works. It's fathers teaching their sons. And he says, and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. I mean, 
man, when are you ever not doing one of those things, you know? <laughs> you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So how is it that you live out a new heart being worked into you? Well, you, you work out what has been worked into you. There's a Bible verse about that somewhere. A transformed life, a transformed life of a father before his sons with teaching them is how this is lived out. But what you're teaching the kids is not, we have a code of conduct in this house. <laughs> this is what the Ten Commandments say, and you guys need to straighten up and behave right. So, well, that was never the purpose of those ten words was just to try to coerce people into some obligated external sort of obedience, but to show them you don't have the heart that you should. Uh, you need a new heart. And if God gives you that, you'll, you'll want to do these things. But this is the instruction that needs to be there. This is why if you went back through this situation, you, the way that you could honor God is this. The way that you could have spoke to that person is this. This is what God is has taught us, and it's about honoring him ultimately. Daniel Block, in his commentary on this section, writes, quote, True love for God is rooted in the heart, but it is demonstrated in life, specifically a passion to speak of one's faith in the context of the family and to declare one's allegiance publicly to the world. This passage suggests that the very decoration of our homes should bear testimony to our faith, declaring to all guests and passerbys the fundamentally theological outlook of those who live within and serving as reminders to residents to live in dependence on God and to realize that blessing is contingent on obedience, end quote. So you see that it's more than just your life being lived and it's more than just talking and teaching these things, but it even comes down to your might, your resources in your house and how you decorate the thing. So let's put some theology on the, on the wall. Uh, and, and I'm sure that you have those sort of things, but you can see you're, you're potentially fulfilling something that God has taught us to do by putting those things up. So fathers, fathers in the room, how do we do this? How do we teach our sons diligently? Maybe you could tell me what you think yourselves. We got, we've got a lot of dads in here. How, how do you teach your sons diligently? Which obviously we know this doesn't exclude daughters. How do you do this? How do you teach your, your children diligently does it act does it ever happen accidentally do you ever teach better than you prepared for who has a plan as, as a father on how they're going to go about teaching their children but I know that God wants me to do this and this is how I'm carrying it out in my home. As we've read this, this is, this is something that it begins with, you're, you're in, internalizing 
covenant truth. And you're teaching it to your children. So it, it starts with one, you have to be converted. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you have no access to the wisdom of God. It has to start with, you actually fear God. And then that's demonstrated and you actually live for him. You know, now you actually have an appetite for his word. You actually have access to that wisdom and power by his spirit to, to live by it. But then from there, you're, you're cultivating that. You know, you're like, I have to know more about the Bible because God wants me to, to teach my children to be proficient in knowing about everything that's in scripture. Now, that's a massive call for every father. You know, this is a task that God has given us and we should approach it with fear and also much preparation and thinking about you know, what exactly does God want me to do? Why does he want me to do it? Because he cares about my motives and why I'm doing it. And how am I going to carry it out exactly? Because what we're going to teach to our children is all the, the what, why, and so what of life and Bible and everything. You remember when you talked about our hermeneutical questions, you know, even when we're just reading scripture, asking question, you know, what, what does it say? Why did the biblical author write it then to those people? And, you know, so what? You know, what do I do with this? You know, what does it teach me about God or theology or worship or how to live my life? And you see this throughout that fathers are to answer, you know, the, the, what, the what questions. Like, well, well, what we do is we celebrate the Passover. And then what do curious kids do when is all of a sudden you want to slaughter lammy we've had lammy for a year like why lammy well the the reason why is because this reminds us of when yahweh our god delivered us out of egypt and he passed us over and we weren't slain other people were destroyed but we were delivered you know there, there's a why to the what of the passover and like well so what Remember these things. Remember what God is like and worship him. Recognize that you need his remembrance and deliverance too. Uh, recognize that uh, if you live like the Egyptians, he'll treat you like one. But if you have a heart that believes and trusts in him, know that you have a certain deliverance in him that he's going to carry out to the very end. And we're doing this with everything in life. I mean, think about there's a... Uh, an article I could, I could share with you, any of you that are interested by Jason DeRoshi, and it's called Fathers Disciplining Children. And he says principle number one out of this text is making disciples of our children is about helping them treasure God's supremacy over all things and all of their lives. You know, we, we want to live a life that shows God is supreme. Uh, he affects how I make every single decision that I make. And so we explained to, to kids, you know, this is what, this is what we're doing. You know, when they're really young, you, that's about as far as it goes sometimes. It's just, what we're doing is getting in the van. <laughs> yeah, well, why are we doing that? You don't need to know that. You just need to know that I'm trustworthy and that you need to get in the van. <laughs> you know, that's the what. But you, you do have to answer this, this why question as, as well throughout life. And it could be everything from... Well, you know, what we're going to go out and do is we're going to, to fill in this hole in the yard. 
Why are we going to do that? Well, because we love people who come over to our house and we don't want them to, to twist their ankle. These people are made in the image of God and we care about them. And how could we, knowing that this is here, just leave it to somebody's detriment? By the way, be careful in my yard if you come out there. The dogs are digging holes. But we want to think about that and to, to explain the why question and not, not just wait till they ask, but to explain, well, why, you know, what we're going to go and do is uh, go over to these other people's house to, to help them with yard work or to, to bring them a meal or just to go spend some time with them. But the reason why we're doing it is so that we can demonstrate the love of God to somebody else. Uh, they're having a hard time and they're going through this and we, we want to give of ourselves to show them uh, something of the love of God to encourage them, to, to be with them, to help them with things that uh, needs to be done. You know, we're, we're teaching our children those sort of things and the, there's this intentionality of thinking about, well, how do I love God and I honor him in this situation? How do I love my neighbor and see him in need and be one who's meeting that need while discipling my children and all of the theology that goes behind making those sort of decisions where you're loving other people, which again, it's, it's, a, it's a covenant keeping. You know, you're, you're keeping faithfulness with somebody else and you're looking out for their interest. So one of the things we, we would disciple you know, our kids in is this is what love means and this is why we're making decisions like this. Principle number two that DeRoshi derives from this passage, he says, parental instruction should be both formal and informal, impacting every setting and situating, situation. So think about f formal teaching. You know, this happens, ha you have daily practices. You know, some people, they'll, they'll look at this text and they'll talk about this idea of uh, family worship or a time when, you know, dad spends time reading through scripture or singing songs with the kids or something like that. Well, we see this text, that's something you could do. You could apply it that sort of way. But the text is way more general than that. <laughs> you don't want to miss that. It's, you know, in everything that you're doing in life, it's not like, well, today we had our 10 minutes of Bible and now I got other stuff to do. So let's just go sin against each other and live throughout this whole day however we want to. So we want to think about daily practices. You know, how, how are we daily intentionally teaching our, our kids about the Lord and living for him and developing for them a, a, a biblical instruction in their minds. And same with weekly practices. There's, there's certain things that we choose to do in the week and it communicates something to your kids. Like when you dedicate yourself to being with the church on Sunday mornings. Uh, you and the, not just on Sunday mornings. Like, oh, our parents want to go meet with these people like two or three times a week. What's the deal? And then they read Acts chapter two and like those people got together every single day. It's like we're underdoing this, mom and dad. No, they wouldn't say that. <laughs> but we have weekly practices that that communicate, you know, what our priorities are, what what we think is uh, important. So I think about that, our weekly practices, the things that we're uh, committed to. We're teaching priorities to our, to our children by our actions. 
but we don't want to just kind of haphazardly be doing things. We want to think, well, what's going to be the best choice and how am I going to explain to my children theologically why I picked this thing over that thing or why we're making this decision and not that one? Uh, that's something that we as fathers would do well to disciple our children in. What about annual practices? This is still formal teaching. What are some annual practices we have to disciple our children? One of them happens in December. Yeah, holy days or holidays, right? Those are their annual events. And sometimes maybe we have some, uh, you know, other things that uh, we want to utilize in that way. But it's, you know, this, this is a time to, to remember the significance of the birth of Jesus, his incarnation, why he came, his mission, and what he did. You know, another time to remember, well, that Jesus, after he died, he was raised from the dead. So I explain the significance of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his victory, and his ascension. We want to have annual events. So you can get all this as being derived out of you know, principles that were taught in the Old Covenant, which they had a calendar that was meant to teach theology to families. We're going to think about that for ourselves. It's not just, well, the reason that we celebrate this thing is just, it just happens. It just happens every year. It's just what we do. I grew up doing this, and we always have green bean casserole. I mean, what else did you expect? This is just what your grandmother did. There should be a little bit more behind it than just, this is just what you know, we've always done. I like green bean casserole. I hope you do too. <laughs> There's a debate in our home. Major life transitions. This is other formal major life transitions. You know, it's like kids, they, they grow up, they come of age at different times, different things happen in their lives, and you got to explain different, different things to them. Because growing up happens really fast all of a sudden. You start becoming aware of all sorts of crazy things and new temptations. And it seems like it just happens in like a period of three days. It's like, what happened to our young, innocent child? And this, the world, how do I protect them from the world? But they got to live here and I got to prepare them to live here and replicate something about like what Solomon did in his homeschool class and having his son like look at that thing going on with the lady and explain to him how he needed wisdom in real time. It's like, would you ever do that in homeschool? <laughs> Well, that's, an, that's for another day. Major life transitions. You know, thinking out there, growing up and uh, different things they're going to encounter, preparing them for, you know, the, the next stage in life for various changes. And sometimes that's, uh, you're going through, maybe you're, you're, you're moving. Maybe uh, marriage, which could be marriages in the family or ones that you're attending or... Uh, funerals, memorial services, you know, things like this. You know, we, we disciple our children through major life transitions. You know, we want to be intentional about that. Think about it ahead of time before it happens and be prepared to, to do something that points them towards fearing God and walking in his ways. And say there's also informal teaching, which I say is that the good times and the hard times. Jane, notice I didn't say the good times and the bad times because God never does anything bad to us, but he does give us hard things to deal with. 
So what, what are some of the good times we teach our kids in? It's like, look at all this awesome food God gave us. Yeah, praising them for it. Like, man, look at this. God gave us sports to play. God gave us friends to be with. God gave us family to, to be with today. God gave us parks to go to, museums to go to, hikes to go on, things that float on the water. And everybody survived this time. This was a good time. You know, and teach them, we, we thank God for these sort of things because whose hand did they come from? Yeah, they, they didn't come from Mother Nature or, you know, the parents' ingenuity or graciousness necessarily. It's, a, you know, it's from God. But we don't want to overlook that the hard times are from God as well. It's also from his hand that uh, we receive calamity as well, and it's for our good, and we want to help our kids through those moments that this thing that happened in the family or is going on or uh, things that they're dealing with personally. Uh, to process and to remind God is good and he's doing good in this. See, we, we trust him implicitly just because we know who he is. We don't, we don't have to know all the ins and outs of why he's doing what he's doing. We just need to know that he's trustworthy. And perhaps he'll reveal to us something of what he's doing in his wisdom. Because we know that he's wise. He never does anything haphazardly or foolishly, but he's designed everything. This is... This difficult moment in our life right now was designed perfectly for each and every one of us to do something very specific and each one of us individually and together as a family in connection with the family of families and the church in connection with other people who see our lives so that we can display the greatness of our God. So when people look at us and say, you people should not have peace while you're going through things like this. This is terrible. You should be really anxious and upset and try to get revenge or something like that. You know, you Christians don't make sense. Like you pray to God and all of a sudden you're at peace and it doesn't make any sense to me. We want to disciple our families through those sort of events. Well, as we see in this text, there's, there's only one God. There's only one in whom we're in unique covenant relationship with like this and we're to love him with everything that we are and have and it is 10 o'clock and 30 seconds that's pretty good so any any questions that get really super short answers Love God with everything that you are and all that you have. All right, let's pray and you guys can continue and worship and fellowship together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for first loving us. Even while we were unlovely, but that you would display your loveliness and showing amazing grace towards wretches like us and to still be our God even through our continued weakness and failures and ups and downs. Thank you that you will never leave us, 
that you will never forsake us, that you will keep covenant with us. You'll never break it. And more than that, you will graciously preserve us to keep covenant with you also, to make it all the way to the end. Thank you for this certain hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And from that hope, we pray that you would help us today to live faithful for you, to have a heart to do all that you have instructed in your word and to display it by how we live to others, to be able to teach it to others with a mind towards future generations, that they would know you and how to walk in you and that you would give our children a heart to fear you, that they would have access to your wisdom, that they would be given new hearts to love you, the ability by your spirit to walk in you. Pray that we would leave here further sanctified, that we would make progress in these things for the joy of our household and for the sake of your glorious name, that you would be further known through us, that we would bear testimony to you as you are and what your love is truly like in some faint way through our small lives. Amen.